continuing on with the same uh, story that we were in, and I'm kind of breaking this into uh, a couple of different sermons. Uh, as I was wrestling uh, Tuesday with this, I had originally planned this to be two sermons, uh, this particular section, and um, I was kind of, why am I doing two, why am I doing two, and as the more I got into it, I realized I really need to do two. I really need to do two, otherwise it'd be one really long sermon. And uh, since I had to do two sermons, that would have meant, you know, like, more work on Tuesday. So anyway, chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethsaida, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Take up your bed. Walk. And at once this man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple, And said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I am reminded of the words of Augustine this morning, and I ask that they would be true for us. Come, O Lord, and stir our hearts. Call us back to yourself. Kindle your fire in us and carry us away. Let us smell your fragrance and taste your sweetness. Let us love you and hasten to your side. And we ask this. In Christ's name, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. If you want to cause a controversy whenever you get a group of Christians together, there are a few easy ways. One, of course, is to bring up the topic of Calvinism. But even if you're amongst a group of Calvinists, a good quick way to start a fight, if you're so inclined, is to bring up the Sabbath. There's nothing that probably guaranteed to cause a ruckus more than trying to talk about the Sabbath. Because there is a lot of disagreement within the church, even within the Reformed Church, about what we do with this thing called the Sabbath. 
But I'll let you know that this controversy is not new. It's not even 500 years old. We see from this text, it is over 2,000 years old. People, God's people, have struggled with what to do with rest for thousands of years. And this text really is about that struggle. It is about that controversy. And I hope it should shed light on our particular struggles and help us to see a way through the midst of the controversy. The big idea this morning is that Jesus determines what is lawful on the day of rest. First off, let us see that the Sabbath controversy, yeah, controversy is controversial. You'll see this in a moment. The healing of the paralyzed man that we read about is not the end of the story. It's not just, he's, par- he's paralyzed, Jesus comes, he heals him, and the, what a great story, and everything just moves on. It really is the beginning of the story, not the end of the story. There's this foreboding note in the, the second part of verse 9. That day was a Sabbath. It sets the stage for everything that's going to follow in the next couple of sermons. And it causes us to ask a few questions. First off, let me note that in the way the, the, the structure is in the Greek, the, the idea of Sabbath is emphasized because the Greek writing is almost like when Yoda speaks, everything's jumbled. Oh, it's me you seek. Or I can't remember my Yoda line. But anyway, Yoda, that's what happens sometimes. The brain just does not function right when you want it to. But Yoda did not speak what we would say is proper English. Oh, there it is. Oh, that's Yoda you seek. Okay, there you go. There's for you. Greek is sort of like that. They jumble around. The word order is jumbled around because it's not about word order for them. It's, it's more about the endings that show what function it has within a sentence. And so Sabbath is slid near the beginning of this phrase so that there's an emphasis. Sabbath. John wants you to know this is significant. What's also important as we look at the grammar of this particular thing, and I know you guys don't like grammar. I don't like grammar. Okay, But what we see there is that there is no article, no definite article. They've supplied it. When we see it says... Um, this day was the Sabbath. And we, ha- we have some questions that kind of come up. Because we recognize, even from the text that we read in Exodus 31, it says Sabbaths, plural. Okay, there was the weekly Sabbath that happened every day. I mean, not every week, every week, not every day. The sixth day, the, uh, sorry, not the sixth day. Seventh day, last day of the week, was the Sabbath rest. In addition to that weekly rest, there were also the additional rests that came with feast days. Okay? When does this take place? A feast. And so there is sort of a controversy, or at least a question, as to what Sabbath it was. Was it the weekly Sabbath, or was it an additional Sabbath for the feast? Not that it matters so much in terms of what takes place, but that's just something for us to kind of think about. Now, the lack of the article could mean one of two things. It could mean that this, the sentence structure is very much like we saw in uh, John 1, verse 1, that third phrase. 
In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? Where both God and Word are in the nominative case, meaning they both could be the subject, blah, 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 blah. You want to identify which of those is the subject, God, and which of those, sorry, the Word. (sighs) My brain's not functioning today. Word is the subject, God is the predicate nominative. Okay, so it could just merely be that there's no article because Sabbath is functioning as a predicate nominative. So we don't want to make too big of a stint. Oh, it's a Sabbath, therefore it must be necessarily a feast day, an additional feast day. Hope I didn't bore you with all of that kind of stuff. But it is important, I think, as we kind of work through this particular passage. All right. The Jews rightfully guarded the Sabbath. From the passages that we read from Exodus and Numbers this morning, you can see why. The penalty for profaning the Sabbath in Exodus 31 was death. We see that taking place in the passage from Numbers, where there was the man who profaned the Sabbath by gathering the sticks, presumably for his fire. The idea being that there are six days you have to gather those sticks. Why are you doing this on the seventh day? Okay. And he was punished with the same punishment that was mentioned in Exodus 31, death. And so it's right for them to be very concerned about Sabbath breaking. But here's part of what they did. In order to keep you from breaking the Sabbath, they would put additional barriers in the way. They fenced it to protect it. And what happens is that when we do that, we tend to make those fences at least as important as the very thing that we're protecting. It's good to protect the Sabbath not only because of the penalty, but recognizing that it is a creation ordinance. Not only was it a creation ordinance that we see from Genesis chapter 2, but it's also, as we saw in Exodus, it's a sign that God was going to sanctify them. So it's good, and it's right for them to want to protect the Sabbath. And so they speak to this man who's been healed, now carrying his bed in obedience to Jesus. They say, it's not lawful for you to take up or to carry your bed. Their issue with him, initially, was that he was doing work. Now, of course, they're initially taking it out of context, his work, had it just been he decided to carry his bed one day, and it was the Sabbath day, then he would have been wrong. I'm not sure why he would decide to carry his bed through the streets of Jerusalem on a given day. Uh, That's not a normal practice, but had he just done that, he would indeed have been breaking the Sabbath. But that is not just the whole story. That's a very superficial way of looking at his actions. So do this serious penalty It's important to understand what was meant by the Sabbath. As I mentioned, the Jews protected the Sabbath, and they did it by creating hundreds of laws that they thought were implied by this command of the Sabbaths. And so they sat and they thought, what does it mean to do work? What does it mean to carry a burden? What kind of burdens can we carry? What kind of burdens can't we carry on the Sabbath? And so the Mishnah, for instance, outlines 39 classes of work. 39. 
They spent a lot of time thinking about this. What could and could not be done on the Sabbath. And I'll let you know that one of the things that could be done was carrying a paralytic. And so that was, it was lawful for you to show mercy by carrying someone who was paralyzed. That was an acceptable class of work on the Sabbath. And so what most commentators think is going on here in the, the question by the Jews, <clears throat> which we should mean the, we understand as the Jewish leaders, is that they believed he was breaking one of those 39 classes of work. Okay? He was doing something that he was not lawfully able to do on the Sabbath. Now, lest we think that this was something that happened only 2,000 years ago, and since the coming of Jesus we have been set free from this kind of mindset that wants to break down 39 classes of work, this spirit, unfortunately, of legalism continues with respect to the Lord's Day. One of those funny things that happens in seminaries is that you interact with guys from different churches, different denominations, different backgrounds. I mean, you know, I was a Roman Catholic who was converted and then went to a Baptist church, and now I'm at this Reformed seminary. So it was very interesting to me to interact with all these people. And there were a lot of things that I hadn't settled in on yet. Okay. One of my friends <clears throat> worked at a church for a while as a you know, youth volunteer. In order to work there, you had to sign a piece of paper that indicated that while you may drive your car on Sunday, because you have to get to worship, you may not buy gas on Sunday. And so if you, know, if you were driving your car on Friday or Saturday and happened to look at that little gauge... See, I'm one of those people. I wait till it go, that light goes on, man. That light goes, I'm not, unless I'm like going to make a long trip, okay? So, Stephanie, there will be gas in the van tomorrow. Don't worry. Okay? I'm going to check it. But, you, you know, unless you happen to check early and you, were, you realized, oh, the light comes on, so, oh boy, it's Sunday. I can't buy gas today. I can understand wanting to limit commerce, but to make rules about it so that a person has to rearrange their life around it seems to me a little legalistic. Massachusetts used to have the blue laws. They weren't the only state that had blue laws, but they were, they were a... They hung on a long time from the Puritan background of Massachusetts. They still have the blue laws going. Yeah? Okay, good. Now, it was interesting, because if you went to a grocery store on Sunday, they would open, but there would be certain aisles that would be marked off. You couldn't go in that aisle because that aisle contained things that were not necessary. And so you could go to the store and you could buy milk, you could buy eggs, you could buy that kind of stuff. But Cheerios, forget about it. You know, there were these whole rows where aisles were marked off that you could not go in them. And even within some rows, you could buy from this section, but you can't buy from this section. Because they're very consumed with this idea of we have to make sure no one is breaking God's law. In Florida, one day, we, Amy and I had a rough Sunday. We decided we wanted pina coladas. And alas, there was no rum. So we decided to go to the store. Guess what? Can't buy liquor on Sunday. You can buy beer. Can't buy liquor. 
you know, the, these, this attitude that we're trying to build all these walls and fences, it still continues to this day. But Calvin stands out among, against, in a sense, all the rest of the commentators that I've seen about this passage. Calvin brings us to Jeremiah 17 to argue that essentially, that technically, this man broke the Sabbath. For in Jeremiah 17 it says, Thus says the Lord, Take care for the sake of your lives, and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day, or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath, or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your fathers. Calvin argues that in light of Jeremiah 17, we should understand that he was essentially breaking the law. Now, we'll pause that. We'll get back to Calvin in a few minutes and resolve how he does not call this man a sinner, okay, in this particular instance. As I mentioned, the, the Jews did permit works of mercy upon the Sabbath, you know, like carrying a paralytic. They also permitted, uh, or per- permitted works of necessity. But what often happens in in the midst of controversy is that we forget about those things and we go to the extremes. Okay? They're going against this guy and they're not going, they're not asking that question, is this an act of mercy? Is this an act of necessity? They're immediately going for the jugular with this guy. You're not permitted to do that on the Sabbath. And in the midst of this whole controversy, never once is it just quelled by the fact that this was, the, this was an act of necessity that was created by an act of mercy. They go after Jesus, heavy and hard, because of this. When the fact that it was mercy-motivated and an act of necessity should have silenced the whole thing completely. That's what happens in controversy. We forget that there are legitimate exceptions to certain things, and we just go for the jugular. All of our little inner lawyers start to come out, and we basically assassinate. We condemn and judge quickly. (sighs) No one asks, how did his bedroll get to the pool in the first place? Know that? I don't think he lived at the pool. Presumably someone would have carried him. Now, there again, we get back to that oddity of this, is that they, they loved him enough to carry him to the pool, but they didn't love him enough to put him in the water, to wait with him until the water was stirred and try to, try to get him into the water so that he might be healed. Remember, that's what he says. Sir, I have no one to put me in the water. Okay? So, in order to get there, get him in his bed there, there had to, because I don't think he left his bed there, there had to have been a work of mercy that took place. The second work of mercy that he received was that he was healed on the Sabbath, or a Sabbath. And so both of these uh, acts of mercy now create the work of necessity that he cannot leave his bed there. He needs to bring it home. Even if Jesus doesn't tell him to pick up his bed and bring it home, common sense would indicate, I probably shouldn't leave my bed here. I ought to bring it home. 
So controversy about the Sabbath raged then, and it still rages today. How are we to kind of untie this Gordian knot? First off, the sign points to Jesus, who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now we saw from Luke, uh, not Luke, Matthew 12, if we go to Mark 2, we'll also see this, that Jesus and the Jewish leaders often got into wrangles about the Sabbath. This is not the only occasion when they had discussed the Sabbath and disagreed. There are many times. We saw it there in Matthew 12, first off, because Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field and they, did, they committed the heinous crime because they were hungry of harvesting grain. You know, they took a little bit off in their hand, got the husk off, popped it in their mouth. Harvesting, work. That's in one of our 39 classes. You can't do that. Okay? And Jesus engages this discussion with them on that case. Right on the heels of that, he's in the synagogue, and there is the man who has the withered hand, and Jesus, in light of that previous conversation, brings up this question, so what should I do? Is it okay to do good on the Sabbath? You're, you're criticizing me and my disciples for doing works of necessity, got to eat, on the Sabbath. I guess they could have said, you don't have to eat, you can wait a day. Okay, But nonetheless, you're criticizing me for works of necessity on the Sabbath, are you going to attack me now for works of mercy on the Sabbath? And he asks them the question, don't you get your axe, your ass out of a, a ditch if it falls in? Don't you rescue your sheep? Isn't, it, isn't a man more important? They don't answer him. And so he asks the man to stretch forth his hand and the man is healed. His withered hand now has strength and is able to function as it's intended to. So, they often attack Jesus for performing these permissible acts of necessity and mercy. Jesus is brought into this discussion by the man who was healed. Now, it's important to note that in this text, in this portion of, of this story, twice he is identified as the man who had been healed. Emphasis. John wants you to remember what started this whole thing. Don't get distracted by, you know, even though we're talking about the Sabbath, don't get lump it all into the Sabbath. Recognize he had been healed. There was a, a miraculous healing that took place. We must not lose sight of this in the midst of the discussion about the Sabbath. And so when they press him, he says, the man who healed me, the man who told me to to get up, to walk. He told me to carry this. And so in a sense, he's doing two things. On the one hand, he's giving God praise for a miracle. I'm now healed. Okay? There's a man who healed me. That's why I'm doing this. But on the other hand, there's sort of this sense that he's also passing the buck. He told me. I'm not doing this on my own. I'm just doing what I was told. Okay? So we kind of get that, both of these things kind of working here, and particularly when we get into, uh, well, five weeks from now, when I get back and talk about the rest of this, we'll see more of how this unfolds. But again, there's that focus. The man who healed me. Third time, this idea of healing comes up. This, of course, gets them going. 
Notice, they didn't say, you've been healed? From what? You were paralyzed for 38 years? Praise God! There wasn't any of that. There was no joy. There was no praise and thanksgiving. You'd think, wow, he's been healed. This is great. Nope. Who told you that? They're consumed with this legalistic spirit that does not allow them to rejoice at the goodness of God. But they want to know to whom they should lay the charge. Okay, if it's not you, then who is it? Who is this man? Of course, the man didn't know. Text says that it was very busy. And Jesus withdrew rather quickly. Although you'd figure in the conversation he had, the guy would have looked at Jesus. And, he, and you know, maybe he didn't know who Jesus was. He, he didn't recognize who Jesus was because basically he lived in his home and at the pool. At the home and the pool. Home and the pool. So he's not hanging out in the courtyard listening to Jesus preach. So he's not sure who Jesus is at this point in time. Okay? He doesn't know. But this sign, of course, points us to something. The sign of this miraculous healing shows Jesus' authority over creation. It shows us, okay, because he's healed. It shows us Jesus' sovereignty over sinners, precisely because it's restoration. There's a connection here with his sin and that being paralyzed. And so, in a sense, Jesus forgives his sin. And therefore also shows us Jesus' authority over the Sabbath. And so while it doesn't say it here in John 5, you could easily take the position that Jesus makes in Mark chapter 2. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Which, remember, in the order of creation, which took place first? Man or the Sabbath? Man was created on the sixth day. The Sabbath was instituted on the seventh day. And so the Sabbath was created for man and for his enjoyment and his pleasure. Man was not created to obey the Sabbath, so to speak. Okay? But the important thing here is, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. It's not that the Son of Man is Lord over most things, but one of them he's not Lord over is the Sabbath. He's Lord of the Sabbath, in addition to being Lord over everything else. And so Calvin sort of brings this in. Calvin notes that ultimately the man does not sin because he is obeying Christ, who is Lord of the Sabbath, even though he doesn't know it's Christ he's obeying. Calvin says this, It was a violation of the Sabbath, as we have said, But Christ, who laid the burden on his shoulders, discharges him by his own authority. Now, doesn't that quickly sort of create a problem for us? Is this implying somehow that Jesus is above the Sabbath? Yeah. Now, we struggle with that because we're used to earthly lawmakers. We're used to kings 
who, you know, not us anymore, but they used to, we used to be, you know, we hear about kings and how they were above the law. They could make the law and it would apply to you. Pretend I'm the king. This is why, this is why it's good to be the king. The law applies to you peasants out there. It does not apply to me. Okay? Some of our earthly lawmakers do it the same way. They make laws that apply to the general populace, but don't apply to them. Okay? And we rightfully are outraged when that takes place. Okay? It's right for us to kind of say, there's something wrong here. There's something rotten in Denmark or Washington, D.C., whichever the case may be. Is that what's going on here? We recognize that as Lord of the Sabbath, it says a couple of things. One, that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the law exists because it reflects his character. Okay? Genesis chapter 2. God rested. Okay? And so there is no way that Jesus, being the Son of God, could ever ask anyone or, or himself do something which is contrary to the, to the true meaning of the law. James chapter 1 says that you know, when, we're, when we're tempted, we should not charge God with tempting us with sin because God can neither be tempted by sin nor does he tempt to sin. Did I say James or John? Okay, good. We're all good. James 1. Okay. So, by his nature, Jesus cannot be tempted to break the Sabbath, nor can he tempt anyone else to break the Sabbath. So ultimately what he's commanding here is not a breaking of the Sabbath. It's not a suspension of the rules. But in terms of his, his position as sacrifice and representative, of course Jesus has to f- completely fulfill the law for us. So there again, we would not see him as advocating that anyone would break the law. Because to advocate that you break the law would mean that I'm a lawbreaker too. I cannot advise you to sin. In doing so, I would sin. Jesus cannot advise advise anyone to sin. So we recognize that as the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus alone rightly understands the true meaning of the law and speaks to this man in accordance to that. Okay? He understands all of the scriptures that pertain to the Sabbath and how to relate them perfectly with one another, whereas you and I, we struggle. We struggle to, to, to synthesize all of these things. We struggle because of our own personal biases. We struggle because of our own sinfulness. We struggle as we sift through this controversy. Whereas Jesus doesn't struggle in sifting through. Maybe we should listen to Jesus. Okay? And so the physical sign points us to Jesus as the Son of God and Lord of the Sabbath. Secondarily, I want us to recognize that Jesus gets glory because we get rest. This is good news. Really good news, I think. So what are we to think of the Sabbath today? Man, if we think about it, all of this controversy takes place on that side of the cross. And now we live on this side of the cross. And 
There are more questions that this raises than we can deal with this morning. We'll deal with some more of them when I get back from vacation. But we have that question of how do we relate to this Old Testament commandment? Let's start off with the idea that Sabbath itself, the word, means to cease or to rest. It means that there is an agent who is active in something, and that agent ceases or its action and rests. As we mentioned from Genesis 2, it's a creation ordinance, meaning it was not simply meant for Israel. It was meant for the whole world. We have to reckon with that reality. And in fact, Josephus notes it was known to the whole world. Josephus says, There is no city anywhere of the Greeks nor of the barbarians. Don't you wish we could use that word more often? You barbarian. To which the observance of the seventh day in which we rest has not reached. So Josephus testifies to the widespread knowledge and use of Sabbath. Okay? Not necessarily the ways the Jews celebrated with all of those laws, but there was a rest that was enjoyed by people in the known world. Now, Turretin. Probably not a name you've ever heard before, aside from maybe Christopher Hall, and one or two of you. I know Ed has, of course. I love Turretin, because his real name is Francisco Turretini. He's Italian. An Italian reformer. There weren't many of those, but he was one of them. He was a 16th century guy. Uh, his, his books, the, the first English translation of the Institutes of Electic Theology came out while I was in seminary, and of course, oh, I've got to get that stuff. He's Italian. <laughs> okay, good, great stuff. And electic theology is the idea of asking questions and then giving answers. That's all that means. And so in his uh, second volume, He talks about this command as he works through the Ten Commandments. And he advocates a threefold understanding of the Sabbath. That there is a temporal aspect, a spiritual aspect, and an eternal aspect. Basically, this is going to break down like this. Temporally, we rest in time for a period of time. I mean, so talking about our earthly existence. We're in time right now. We're when we're dead, we're going to be out of time. Not, you know, outside the bounds of time. Okay? So we, we rest now, physically, in time for a specific period of time. A day, one in seven. But here's the idea. We rest only as we trust God to provide for us. Because, remember, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have freezers, much less freezers in the garage like me. So the the food had to either stay fresh, or but most of them actually lived day to day. You worked so that you could get food that day, like many of the, the people who are day laborers experience. They get their paycheck and it's gone that day. Not that week, not that month, that day. Okay? So in order... To stop working one day in seven means you risk not eating that one day. Right? We saw this during the wilderness years. What did God do? He provided a super abundance 
of manna on the sixth day so they could gather it and have food for the seventh day. And they quickly realized, because of some people who gathered too much on the sixth day, that it wouldn't last to the eighth day. <laughs> it, went, it went bad quickly. It's about trust. Do we trust God enough to rest? To cease from our ordinary labors? Do we trust God for that? Now, we see that in a number of ways. It was a I thought of it this morning. The other day, one of the kids uh, wasn't feeling well and then got sick. And one of the other kids was fretting about it. And part of that is their compassionate nature. They're, they're, sensitive, they're a very sensitive soul. And so there's a good aspect to this that they were concerned about their sibling. I like that. But the bad part of it was is they refused to be consoled themselves by the words of their parents. In other words, they had trouble trusting that Jesus and mom and dad would handle it. And for a lot of people, that's the struggle with rest. We don't trust Jesus to handle it. That's the temporal aspect. Spiritually, we also rest. Now the Jews, as we, we saw from places like Exodus 31, they were to remember or rest in the fact that God is creator, but also, as we see from Exodus 20, to rest in the fact of God as redeemer from Egypt. And so, spiritually, they're resting. God has made me. God will sustain me. God will save me. Okay? You see that? He's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who changes us. We rest in this fact, spiritually. And so, we rest from our toil that comes as a result of the curse because Jesus has worked salvation for us. I like the words of John Frame. I know it's a little contrary to what we read in the Heidelberg Catechism earlier, but the rest is not a rest from sin as such, but a rest from the toil that sin has brought upon our working life. Oh, don't we feel the thistles and the thorns and the sweat of the brow. And Jesus says to us, you only need to worry about that six days a week. There is a day in which you do not need to worry about that, for I am your God. And not only will I ultimately remove the curse, but I will bless you sufficiently now. Trust me. Now, these are sort of the already aspects. We've talked about salvation and, uh, before in terms of there's things we already possess and there are things that we do not yet possess. Well, our temporal rest, our spiritual rest, those are things we already have or are, we already should enjoy now. But as Hebrews 1 talks about, there is a rest that remains. That is the eternal rest. It is the not yet when we will have unhindered fellowship with God. Not because of our goodness, not because of our good works, but because of the work of Jesus Christ. We shall enjoy unhindered access and fellowship with Father, Son, 
and spirit in a way that we cannot imagine right now. So what do we do with this thing? This threefold aspects, everything else. Well, our rest, our ceasing from our striving should include worship. And so, kind of the way I look at this is, we cease from our ordinary activity as much as needed to worship. Francois Turretini. The rest is a cessation from all works of our ordinary and worldly vocation, which can call us away from divine worship. And so, where our worldly and ordinary things conflict with our public worship, as much as we are able, we cease from them that we might partake in the public worship. There's also an element that we should partake in in terms of private worship or family worship on the Lord's Day. And so that means, you know, maybe turning off the TV so that you can worship as a family and worship as an individual. There's time in which you may turn off the stereo, perhaps, that you might read a edifying book of sorts. So there, there should be a rest from these ordinary things to engage in your spiritual life. Okay. See, for me, the last thing I probably need to do on a Sunday is read more theology. <laughs> I need to take a break from reading theology, most likely on the Lord's Day. Okay. But you understand that, that that's part of what we're, we're not just resting in terms of taking big, long naps, which big, long naps are good. They can be enjoyed on the Lord's Day but we're resting that we might worship. That doesn't mean that's all that we do. We don't want it to become a burden. All right? The other part of this is remember that God made the Sabbath for us as a delight. Isaiah 58 talks about that. Call the Sabbath a delight. Recognize it as something good to partake in, to enjoy. Okay? So we can pursue Him so we can delight in Him, so we can glorify Him. Okay? Now the flip side of that is, is we can, remember, that legalistic spirit? Now you might say, I don't want to watch NFL because I want to be able to read theology today and to pray today and to sing some hymns with my family today. And that is a great thing. What is not a great thing is if you then tell your friends that they must also turn off football so that they can do those things. Your enjoyment of the Sabbath, in other words, is not meant to be mandatory for everyone else. Meaning the way you do it does not mean that everyone else has to do it the same way. Is that okay? So that we're not we're not captivated by arguments over how we should celebrate the Sabbath day of rest. The only person that I could possibly think of binding their conscience on this issue would be my wife and children. <laughs> and even there, I have to have wisdom. 
Let's keep this in light of the other creation stories that were in the ancient Near East. We talk, Mike talked about a lot of those in Sunday school. And one of the common themes through many of those is the gods made people to be their slaves. But here we have a God who graciously gives us rest, who makes us to be his image in the world. Yeah, we serve him, but we serve him as his image and likeness, not as his slave. And he specifically wants us to enjoy rest and to enjoy him in worship. He's gracious and cares for us. So, brothers and sisters, the Sabbath day controversy continues to this day. But what is our relationship to that day of rest? How ought we to celebrate it? And so there's this tension that, er that emerges between those who think it completely fulfilled and therefore obsolete and those who make it a burden with regulations similar to what the Jews did. But Jesus, as the Lord of the Sabbath, shows us that it was made for our good. And so I invite you to embrace the rest that God offers so that you might be refreshed spiritually, that you might be refreshed physically, but to be wary of adding restrictions so that it ceases to be a delight and therefore miss the point. Let us glorify God by resting in Christ now and forever. Let's pray. Father, I know there was a lot there. Have mercy on us. Help us to sit and think today. To cease a little more than we have already ceased from our ordinary labors. That we might ponder how it is you would have us spend these days that you have given us. These, as a, what Meredith Klein called, the intrusions of the eschaton. These glimmers of the eternal rest one day a week. That we might indeed delight in you and what you have done for us. That we will be joyful with regard to this day. That we can't, look, we can't wait for that day to arrive each week. Grant us that great grace for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.